Well, what a great year we've had with nearly 100 business owners sharing their unique stories of buying, growing, and selling their businesses. To end this season, we've rounded up five top insights from our guests that I believe every business owner should know. Enjoy. So just to recap here, you know, because I get asked this question a lot, you know, um, uh, what do I need to do to sell my company for Rex or how do I increase my business value by Y? I want to get, you know, these are the kind of results I want. How do I achieve a much better result than kind of where I'm at today? And I think I just to once again paraphrase something you just said, but I don't know, maybe be a world leader in what you do. <laughs> then, then you're more likely to have people chase after you and want to pay you millions. Well, the valuation, right? So we we sold for five time valuation. We we so, so all, when you say five time valuation, do you mean five times uh, five like time gross? I'm sorry, five or? times five times gross. And we okay. we owned nothing. We had licensing agreement. We yeah. owned nothing. So the valuation was so ridiculously good because we had an offer for a specific client, a buyer who was looking for an idea how to grow something that they had paid an obscene amount of money for that they couldn't grow. We were literally the only thing on the market that gave him a shot at actually adding something to this particular business line. That's why. And and you said only one on the market. I mean, it sounds to me like you weren't really on the market, but you got approached and you were willing to engage, but it sounded like you weren't running a process or anything. You were just kind of doing what you do. Is that is that is that a fair comment? Well, I did put the word out on the market. So okay. my my mentor at the time, he had just sold his food stock photography business for $70 million. Seven zero? Seven zero. <laughs> I, I, I mean, that valuation was, 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 I mean, that was sick. Yeah. And he did that because he had all these different lines of business. So he had the, you know, he had the tiered, the tiered levels. Gotcha. And when I was watching him do this, I remember we were standing on a rooftop in Lisbon in Portugal. And he said to me, you are next. I'm like, what are you talking about? You know, this is ridiculous. You know, why would, nobody would ever buy anybody like me. And he says, mark my words, you're the next exit. And then he says, what's your number? Um, what, 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 do you, what do you mean? He says, well, you need to know what your number is, because then when somebody comes and gives you that number, you know, it's time for you to sell. Yeah. Great piece of advice there. You know, I, 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 let's just pick up on that because I, I have this conversation regularly. I had it with a client yesterday about understanding your number and, and they had a similar reaction to what you just described then as what, what do you mean? So it, you know, knowing what number is important to you, and, I, and I'm going to take this an extra step in that don't, I, I find a lot of business owners kind of go, oh, you know, if I had a couple of million or if I had a, you know, like it's this really kind of almost vague, you know, oh, yeah, that number kind of sounds good. And I'm sort of pushing business owners because not everybody's going to have reach a, some skyrocketing valuation, right? It, it's going to be probably sold on the fundamentals and there's going to be a bunch of other issues in there. But I'm always sort of saying, like, please do some math around this, do a little Put a little bit of science behind your thinking, you know. What does a good life look like? What does a, you know, what are the ups and downs? How do you allow for this? Do some 
number crunching, you know, it doesn't have to be reams and reams of modeling, but just at least put some thought into this because if you throw the number out and it's the wrong number, well, it's a bit you're hard screwed. to walk it back. You're yeah. screwed. Yeah, you're screwed. And and so I think this is a very important conversation because the way I looked at it, as I said, I've been thrown out. I've had no money. I still have to put a kid through college. I'm pretty sure my ex-husband's not going to be paying a dime. And all of this is on me. So what would that look like? I want to buy a house so nobody can ever throw me out. I want to put my daughter through college. And if I put my investments in a somewhat semi-conservative, let's say, 8 to 10%, or let's say 5 to 7% investment, given market fluctuations, then of the investments, I could make an income and live on the interest and never touch the principal. Yeah. In addition to buying a house and putting my daughter through college and having the cash flow to do that. That was the number. And then when somebody gave me that number, it was, there was nothing to think about. And this is, I think, where a lot of people make a big mistake because I go, oh, well, that was so easy to get to that number. Uh, maybe I should have asked for more. Maybe I should put myself back out on the market. And maybe I should, should, should ask another buyer for, for more money. And that's how you blow opportunities. Because what Indeed. happened... If I wouldn't have sold six months after I sold, the entire photography industry imploded. I was the last one to sell. Wow. Wow. Cross the finish line just in time. In time. Yeah. And people go like, well, if they give you this much right now, then if you hold on for another year, then you can get this much. And I'm like, nope, this is the number, the marker. Look, another uh, really amazing piece of advice there, Beata. I mean, uh, one of my friends and colleagues um, who works with us at Exit Advisory, he, he always describes it as people putting on their greedy goggles again. <laughs> and I just love that expression yeah. because it's, it's really quite accurate. I mean, I, exactly what you've said. I've had plenty of clients over the years who've said, you know, hey, X is my number. Get me X in a, in a transaction we're done, this is great, we'll do a deal, you know, happy days. And then somewhere halfway through the transaction, they start to get delusions of grandeur and go, oh my goodness, what? Well, you found somebody who's willing to pay that. Oh, well, geez, they must be willing to pay more or hey, or this is the first offer we've got. So if it's the first offer, if we grind this out and go through more buyers, we must be able to get more. And nothing could be further from the truth. Like that first offer actually might be your best and only offer. Um, so it's, I, I think this idea of moving the goalposts is probably a common expression used here in Australia. I don't know if it's used much in the US, but you know, you move the goalposts, you're never going to be able to kick a goal, right? You're just, you're always going to be meandering and renegotiating. And in the end, even the buyers get deal fatigue. They get sick of working with you and they lose trust and lose faith. And so I love that idea of know your number do the deal, get it done, and and yeah, and that's it. Keep it clean. And that's it. Yeah, because you know, I did, I did put myself out on the market, and then I, I, I had one more offer, which was a fraction, and it was the worst offer ever, and it, you know, would have included me then to go on a three-year contract and actually build that business for that company. Uh, and I'm like, absolutely not. You know, I'm 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 not doing any of that. So it took like no time for me. So I I knew I knew I had hit the jackpot. I knew that this particular business, because of the business that they had that they wanted to grow, that I was literally the only player in the market. 
And then I made sure that when we were going through the acquisition and then the integration, I ran the integration myself. So, so they paid me for that. I trained every salesperson in the world on how to sell my stuff. I was committed to having my buyer get their money back within three years, and they did. And so the first incarnation was us just meeting with people and thinking we can just get this done ourselves, and and that quickly became clear that we couldn't do that. We, we pointed a banker and i suppose how i think about it is if you're trying to sell your house without a real estate agent i've sold an apartment doing that and that was pretty simple because someone bought an apartment below me and um and and i would i could offer exactly the same footprint um for the same price and they had a couple underbidders and and that quickly got done without an agent but there was an agent working for that person below and so they had the relationship there to close the sale so that's as close as I've come to selling something without an agent of size and of, of meaningful um, capital gain for me. Um, so, so yeah, so this one here, we, we, we kicked around a little bit where we met with people and, we, and then it quickly became clear, hang on, we, we, we need the profession of someone servicing us and, and doing this properly. And, and when you talk to any person that's been through an exit, they just say that the most important person is your your advisor or, or banker that's acting on your behalf, who you've got around you to get you through. And you won't realise this until you're through the process of how valuable that service is. Um, and, and so, yeah, we ran a process and we went with probably the more affordable option. Uh, we had some relationships with that organisation and, and they were okay. Um, uh, they weren't great, but they were okay. Um, they organised some debt for us um, it, because we became quickly clear we weren't going to get a sale. I was pretty focused on making sure that we got the same value as what Blackmores were valued at at the time, uh, which was probably, you know, our growth was projecting to hitting their numbers, but we hadn't achieved them and they were a publicly listed organisation as well. So I was naming the price, which is, again, something you shouldn't do. Let, let, let the market tell you what your business is worth and then start working back from there. Um, and so that we went all through that and there was a couple of years of fumbling around and, and the business kind of um, went through growth pains and, and we struggled with profitability. So we needed to look inwardly and make sure we got profitability back. Thankfully, growth maintained and, and we, we quickly became the number one player. Um, and then we ran a bit of a process around refinancing that debt and it was with the, the, the current banker that we were working with and, and another banker and the other banker just were, were very hungry to get the deal done and, and worked a whole lot harder than the, the one that we'd had working with us. And they're probably tired of working with us, to be honest, that lost lost interest as well. Uh, but they were there and, and importantly, because we needed to keep the other group honest with competitive intention and and to the point where, you know, the, 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 the banker that had got, you know, been with us for a while got pretty tired with me. And and they said that yeah well they'll 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 provide the the debt if um if if Radic doesn't isn't CEO um, going forward <laughs> okay. I have the state of my business partner uh, and majority shareholder you need to tell these guys that that's okay you're all right with that because we needed to be able to tell the other banker that we have a deal 
and yep. and um, we need you to improve it. And we didn't tell them about the part that I was gone on that new deal. Um, and and um, and thankfully they did, and and they were really excited by me and my team's lead and supported us all the way through. That's a really interesting perspective. I appreciate you sharing that. It's it's once again a couple of takeaways out of that is this this concept of deal fatigue, right? And and deal fatigue is not just tired of the process. Sometimes it's you've been working with other people and whether it's an external banker or it's sometimes it's the other party or whatever it is like you can just get frustrated dealing with people in a scenario that just is maybe not moving as quickly as what everyone wants. Um, so I think that's that's one big takeaway is understanding deal fatigue and how it impacts you. Um, one thing I would like to ask though, which, which I think is going to be super relevant to, to people listening, is, is this question of who do we involve in our internal team? You know, like who, who are we going to include in this process? Because I think everyone's worried about confidentiality and things getting out and will staff leave or will customers leave and all that sort of stuff. So it, it's probably one of the, the big topics I find people asking me a lot of questions about. So what, 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 what sort of approach did you guys take? We set up a deal team and, and so that, that team were incentivized to get a deal done. It was three or four people in our business and that, that was the, they were the only people that knew about the deal. They were the only people working on the deal and, um, and that really worked really well for us. It was an important thing and because our core business was growing so rapidly, we needed all hands on deck. And yes, they weren't just on the deal, but they were the ones that were ring fenced and were aware of the process and were hands on. And the other thing we did too was down the path was really set up all of our reporting. So it was, you know, we'd always talk about being a VIPO standard for that. As soon as we started that sell process, we wanted to make sure that all our reporting, all of our books, all of everything we did was of an IPO standard. And, and, and we didn't need to be doing that, but we just knew that it would hold us in the best of stead for any diligence, any structure, and also making sure that it was really relevant to operating the business and it was used. So all reporting was alive and, and kind of brought to life and, and the narrative around actions and outcomes and, and you know, board presentations on certain areas of the business, all, all were really relevant and kept in a data room that we were building over a long period of time. How important is it? I mean, I've seen, geez, I've seen some bad advisors out there, um, whether they're representing legal, financial, commercial, you know, we've seen them all. But I've also seen the polar opposite of that. I've seen amazing people on the other side of the table. How, how important is it from your perspective? Um, if the other team have really good advisors, you know, is that going to increase the chances of success of the deal? How important is it that they've got good a good team around them? Yeah, so the the worst thing we can get is bad advisors. As a buyer, when the sellers got bad advisors, um, because often and it's it's bad for the seller too. And I'll I'll use the legal example. Um, I'm really clear in my book: you don't need an attorney. You need an M and A attorney because yes. it's a it's a specialized discipline, and there are things in there that sort of everybody's agreed to. I don't know how working capital works or how fundamental reps work or something like that. And we've been in these situations where the deal couldn't close because their advisor was telling them something that 
bluntly, their advisor like didn't understand. If their advisor had called their M and A person inside their firm, they'd have been, "Oh no, that's how that works." And uh, I'm actually going to give you a specific example because this whole fundamental, like, if I could put more content in my book, like, I would put an appendix about fundamental reps. Yes, it's a thing, and people get really torqued out about it. And fundamental reps means stuff like you own the company, and like that's the big one. Like you own the company and there's no fraud. And if yes. if you don't own the company, I can get all the money back because you don't own the company. And this poor guy, like his attorney got him all spooled up about, well, what if you ask for all the money back? I'm like, okay, but that only happens if you don't own the company. As long as you own the company, yeah. we're good. Um, yes. Anyway, like this fundamental reps thing is... If you've got a good advisor, they're like, here's exactly how this works. Stop talking about this. What we should talk about is this other issue about a knowledge qualifier or something like that. And so yeah. I've seen over and over again, the bad advisors still do as much work as many hours. It's just on all the wrong things. Yeah. And by yeah. the way, I don't think like we're not incentive. We don't get a better deal when there's bad advisors. Like it just, it's just harder. And you end up fighting over yeah. goofy you're selling your business, there is no point in lying about anything ever. It's going to come out. Yes. With a wash. It's, it's just delaying and inevitable. You're going to erode trust. If there's warts on, if there's warts on something, you should probably address them more on the, on the front side than hope they don't get found on the backside. Yeah. But yeah. The- let, 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 let me, let me pose a quick, quick thing to you here, but it's, it's something that I'm always saying to my clients and I, and I guess supports what you're just saying there about, I always had my clients treat me a little bit like your lawyer. If there's bodies buried somewhere, you've got to tell me. Yes. Because they will be found. And to be honest, in my experience, buyers don't expect you to have the perfect business. In fact, they know there are going to be problems in the business somewhere. It's only a question of where are they, how big are they. And, and this is the most important point. As the business owner, have you identified them, thought about them, and, and considered how you might solve those problems? Because if we buy this business, we're buying that problem with it. And maybe you come with the business, maybe you don't. But fundamentally, we need to have a solution or at least have thought around that so we can make some decisions. Well, absolutely. And, and right, putting on my buy side hat for just a moment, actually, I, I prefer that. I'm hoping that some of the problems <laughs> are things I've, I've solved before that someone's created a diminished value in their mind of what their business is because they do have these problems. And I'm thinking in the background, and I've solved three of those last week. This isn't a problem. This isn't a problem. <laughs> This is, I just need to close yeah. the door and we'll be fine. So it's more yeah. of the acknowledgement than on the front side. But again, to me, when you have the right partner that's representing you, when just like you said, treat them like a lawyer, they're going to coach you through how these conversations are going to go. They're going to prep you for, for how to say what to say and when to say things if they're good and they're in their corner because they've been there before, right? There's, there's, yeah. there's only so many different nuances to the average transaction. And once you've been through, who knows how many, right? You've been through hundreds to my, you know, my five or six, but they all start to feel yeah. like shades of the same same transaction, the same case, yeah, the same yeah. dance back and forth. It's it's funny how I was I was explaining to someone the other day how the framework, as I explain it to people at the very beginning, the framework is the same. The process sounds the same to every single client. Yes, but the journey is absolutely unique because you're an, a unique individual. The buyer's the individual. The way you've come together in the current environment is individual. But the steps the, the steps we have to take are still going to be the same. It's so. It's still important to be able to 
navigate because any one of those steps can cause a deal to collapse. So you need that experience and knowledge to be able to understand, oh, yeah, we saw this from that deal and that part from a different deal. And together, here's how we'll come up with the right solution for you. But it's, yeah, it's interesting. There's so many similarities. yet, And yet everything is still its own little unique special thing. <laughs> of, of course it is. And, and that, that to me is that part of Right, going through that that sell side process to put a bow on that, you get that you get that letter of intent. And I like I'm, I'm hoping that I got two or three, and I can do almost a silent auction and, and put them against themselves. But that's a hope and a wish, not necessarily something that's going to come come to fruition every time. But you get yep. that LOI, and then the most difficult part is keeping your mouth shut once you have the LOI. Don't tell your friends. Don't tell much of your family. You probably you're going to have to start sharing some things with your staff because the due diligence process is going to whatever. Whatever level of examination you think you've went through before, you have no real understanding of, of what a true examination looks like until you get through a healthy due diligence cycle. What for me, is, <laughs> depending on the size and complexity of the deal, plan on four or six months of just every detail being scrutinized of, of things you've forgotten about from you know two or three years ago that you know some invoice wasn't signed and right, yeah. misappropriation of funds. Are, are the reconciliations completely askew? Do we have to rework the financial yeah. <laughs> and it, and it, it, this it, is why you need people to help you do it right it's like oh my goodness it's i, I had a friend of mine who described it as a three-month colonoscopy that he was awake for the entire time <laughs> that's exactly right and they're using razor blades half the time right it, 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 it is a painful process right and, and then fully knowing you get through that and then you're going to have another round of negotiation at the final table where you're sitting there you know metaphorically but maybe physically you're sitting around a conference table with their lawyers and your lawyers and you're yeah. literally retreading the entire deal all over one more time. And it can still collapse in that moment. It's not done yet. Yes. Yes. Oh, man. It's, 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 that it's, that it's, is really, really great advice. The whole, I got the LOI, I'm starting to spend the money mentally is is a real problem. It's And it's we've had to coach so many clients through it. And, and to be honest, even the ones that you coach the most, they're, they're the ones who still just don't get it. They're... I've seen people start slacking off. They'd stop turning up for things. They start, you know, it's like, mate, you, you are still, you need to run this business like you're going to own it forever. Keep running it like that. That's, and, and by the way, that's what buyers want to see is that you are preserving, if not enhancing, the value that they're going to acquire. Well, yeah, I, I, that is incredibly brilliant advice. Didn't even think about sharing that. I mean, it's, you sign that LOI, right? And, and the buyer, me on the buy side, not only am I doing the due diligence, but how are we trending towards a forecast? How are we adhering to the budget? Yeah. How's the feel and the energy of the business that's still there? Because an LOI is not legally binding. I can walk away because I just, I woke up and I don't like the deal anymore. I don't, yeah. I don't write yeah. the nuances of that too. That's not always true, but a lot of them are just, you just, yeah, I'm out of it because it doesn't feel right anymore. And it's like, hold on. Yeah. I'm really hitting it spot on, Simon. It's, you got to, almost be more intentional in pressing that gas all the way to the floor. How much additional ramp up can you get? Because to me, as someone that's looking to buy a business, it's inherently because I think I can do it better. I mean, let's just call it what it is. You don't buy a business because I, I think this person's smarter than I am and I think they're more successful than I am. You're buying it because you think you see some hidden value that you can extract out of a business. And so for sure. ramping up, that's, that's motivating. That's exciting for me of, oh man, if they're doing this, I still think I'm smarter than this person. So I can get even more of a return than them got to press that gas to the floor. Yeah, for sure. And and even if the deal, by the way, for those listening, even if the deal doesn't fall over because you've switched off, there is this little thing called retrading, right? Where, hey, they offered you 10 million in the LOI, but over the last three or four months, you've taken your foot off the gas, you stopped turning up, your attitude's shifted, the vibe 
of the deal, dare I use a term like that, has changed. And people go, I, I actually, now that we've dug into this, I don't think it's worth 10 million anymore. I think it's worth seven. And I tell you what, I, the, I think most business owners, they've reached that point where they've already, they're already checked out, right? They've started spending the money. And so they end up accepting even that deal because they can't see a way, any other way out of that, that problem. And so, and it's unfortunately, it's a problem of their own, their own creation. Um, you know, if you'd stayed focused, stayed sharp, stay frosty, man, like you've got to assume the deal is not going to go through until you've signed the contract and frankly, you've been paid. <laughs> well, yeah. And, and, and on the buy side, I'm, that's a strategy on the buy side. It is to, yeah. not to drag it out and to be, you know, disrespectful with it, but it, it is that strategy of, look, if everything you presented is exactly as you presented it, I would buy your business for this. But having Correct. a handful of transactions, I know everything isn't as you presented it. It's my job to find all the things you haven't presented while simultaneously wearing you out enough. You've already told everybody under the sun you've sold the business. And if I can get a $10 million asset for seven, I'm, that's, that's, a, that's a good deal because I was actually probably okay with it at seven. I've, I've probably yeah. for a, yeah. I would have bought it at 10. And now yeah. Yeah. it's a $3 million pickup. That's a big pickup, 30%. Absolutely. I will say just from the perspective of there's lots of business owners out there who you're going to exit and your company is not going to keep going the way it is at the moment. It's, it's just that's life. And sometimes you get swallowed up by large listed corporates who – they don't want lots of entities. They're buying you to keep growing their entity. And, you know, that's something I think, um, you know, we chatted a little bit about before we, we jumped on air, um, Nikki, but this, this I think is part of this whole transition phase and, and understanding what happens to your business after you exit. What is your role in this transition period after you exit? And I, I think if I can give one piece of advice here to all business owners is, don't wait till you're halfway through a deal to start thinking about that <laughs> because you may find emotionally that what's going on in that deal and where your business goes afterwards may not be what you want. It was actually really interesting. I stayed on for a couple of months after the transaction. Um, we got, uh, um, we were able to, we got cash up front. So there was no one earn up for, for the deal. I wanted to stay on because I wanted it to be the best transaction transition that's ever been existing here. Cause you know, high functioning, whatever. Um, and I actually found that when I left, I was cool. I was really comfortable that I had done the best job I possibly could do with the industry, with my staff, with setting up the, the new management team, you know, the new owners of the business. And I was really fortunate that I had no qualms about leaving. I, I felt like they were, and the business, I don't know a lot about the, the operations of the business now. Um, I, of course, it would have changed because we were bought by a big public company. <laughs> so you know, like it became one entity of a whole lot. Um, but functionally, the reputation of the business has still sustained itself. I don't know whether how the operations were. And I was very, very impressed with myself when I was okay with that. It was like I'd done my job. And I was able to release the the entity into its new stage, um, which was really which was really cool. Yeah, yeah, it's such a delicate balance. I've found it. Um, you know, I think if you look at it on a, on a scale, 
at, at one end, I've seen business owners completely detached from the business. It's, an, it's purely an asset. I have no emotional attachment to it whatsoever. And I'm, we're selling it. This is, you know, like if I yeah. was selling some other asset, it just doesn't, yeah. it doesn't matter. At yeah. the other end of the scale, I've had clients who took the lowest of three offers because they felt that that buyer would continue their legacy in the way that they wanted. And that was just critically important to them. And they were so personally attached to the asset that, yeah, look, it, it, it impacted very much the, the entire deal and process and structure. Um, I, I would say that most people, like every bell curve, fall in the middle somewhere. Um, but I, I, I think too, like there's nothing wrong with being passionate about your business. I mean, in fact, I, I would even argue you need to have some of that to actually get it where you need it to go. But somewhere along the line, you do have to say, this is an asset. It's not me personally. It's and not. I, yeah, absolutely. And I think that's the way that I actually look at it is I, I look at it that this is either a cash flow like this is it, this is something that I've you know I'm working for myself, but I'm working in a job, you know, like or this is an asset that I'm building, so it needs to be separate from me. So I think that I think these are all really interesting decisions that I'd come to myself over the process. Like, am I building? Am I you know? Am I creating a cash flow for myself? Like, am I creating a job for myself for the rest of my life? Pragmatically, or am I creating an asset that has got to supply? Um, survive past me. And that's what I always did. So I think it's like, you know, Stephen Covey's seven habits begin with the end in mind, understand what you're actually doing with it. Um, and it does get very addictive because especially when you've got a successful business that grows and you're seen as the architect of all of that, and you're seen as the driving force between, between behind all of that. And it's still an asset. It's still... Yeah. It's not still, I've learned a lot and I grew as a person because of my experience that I loved and I will be also very grateful and thankful for that, but it's not me, you know, yeah. and that's how I sort of feel now during my second one is that I can still have the same passion and I still take all the same care and consideration because it's, of course, so much uh, more fragile at this startup stage than it was yeah. at the establishment stage but it's still not me, it's an asset. I hope you found this episode insightful and relatable. If you have any questions about your own business and would like to book a confidential call with me or one of our advisors, visit exitadvisory.com.au or reach out to me on LinkedIn. The links are in the description. And on that note, I look forward to seeing you next year. I'm excited to take the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast to the next level and continue to serve our community with actionable tips and insights. Until then, happy holidays. This is Simon Bedard, and you're listening to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast.